Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is Dr. Todd McGowan, a professor in the Department of English at the University of Vermont and host of the Why Theory podcast with Ryan Engley. Todd, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, I'm delighted to I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Maybe you could start us off by kind of acquainting us with uh, your journey into uh, the depths of Lacan. Yeah, so I it was really so I was in graduate school in the '90s, and I first read Lacan's Cree and I thought it was inscrutable, and so I thought he just has nothing to say to me, and then. It was a few years after, or like maybe a year and a half, early 90s, after Sublime Object of Ideology came out, Slavoj Žižek's book. And that really kind of changed my whole way of thinking. And so it was really it was really Slavoj's intervention that really brought me to Lacan. So it, it's completely through him that I came to Lacan. And then I was, I was in graduate school with a few other people and we we all kind of went in that direction what was interesting was we were all very sartrean we were all very existentialist and that we were not freudian really at all and not really that interested in psychoanalysis but for some reason we're kind of freudian we were existentialist marxist and 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 zizek spoke to that in some way and so we 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 all then we all just read a ton of freud and we read all of lacan and that's so everything built off of that that moment Nice. So I was I did my undergrad in English and sociology, and so through the English studies, I that's how I was kind of introduced to primarily Foucault and Derrida, and so I I don't know I never had much exposure to Lacan until later on. I think I maybe had seen the name in right. the periphery, and I think maybe I'm trying to even think if that's accurate or not, or if it was just through Zizek as well that I kind of stumbled back into him. It's pretty hard as a first, like to to jump right into him first. I think is it's almost impossible. Like I've taught, I've taught numerous classes on Lacan where we never read a single book by Lacan. <laughs> so, oh, that's so, so I, I think I don't ever recommend. I mean, I've done advanced like independent studies with people where we've gone through different seminars. And that's been fine, but but in class even it's just really hard. So I feel like, you know, there's a couple seminars that are easier than others, and that I direct students to. But basically, I'm just go to the secondary sources, and and the secondary sources are good. Like Slavoj is very good. It's not like he's going to misdirect you about what Lacan thinks. So I think that. Like, I think with a lot of thinkers, people are wary of secondary sources. But I think in the case of Lacan, that there's nothing to be wary about. Right. Do you have, actually, if you have any secondary sources, because I know my listeners would definitely be, I have some people that are diving into Ecrete's already. But if you have any sources that you'd recommend or the seminars that you recommend as a starting point, definitely share those with us. Yeah, I would recommend... I almost think you never should read the Acree. Like even <laughs> as far along as you are, I don't know anyone that ever quotes them. That that because he he specifically tried to be more difficult in his written work than in his spoken work. So I feel like you really want to attack the seminars first. And I think seminar eleven, which is four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis, is a really good start. If you're going into Lacan, that's a good starting point. And then probably seminar seven, which is ethics of psychoanalysis. And then I would work into the early ones like seminar two, which is on the ego, and then 
I, I think seminar five is now, I mean, all these seminars are, when I was in graduate school, there were only two or three that were published in English. So I had to learn French just to read Lacan. Oh, so, okay. yeah. So really? now that's not true. And now I think almost as many are out in English as are out in French. So, but, but in terms of the secondary sources, I would say looking awry is still a really good, that's Slavoj's second book, I think is still a really good introduction. And I think Bruce Fink's books are pretty good. Um, the Lacanian subject and the clinical introduction to, to Lacanian psychoanalysis. So those are the basic ones I think that are not hard. What do you think? What do you think? I I do have to ask this question. Um, one of my listeners did want me to mention something about the uh, the piece in Ecree that is uh, the Desaad and the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kant of Exad. Yeah, I think that's a great. To me, that's one of the greatest ones. But I think it's also one of the more inscrutable ones. So, but I think it's really, I think his definition there of sadism is really, really radical and completely cuts against what we usually think. I'm like, we usually think of sadism as the enjoyment of the sadist is first and foremost. And, and the victim is just, it's just a tool for the sadist enjoyment. And right. Lacan completely flips that around that the sadist is actually a tool for the other's enjoyment in the sadistic act. So it's really, you know, Freud himself flipped like his before 1920, he thought all masochism is just inverted primary sadism is primary masochism is just inverted sadism and then after 1920 it's the opposite it's masochism is primary and sadism is just inverted masochism and Lacan is still in that post 1920 way of thinking so I find that that decree is one I just said I don't think there are that many that are valuable I think that one's really valuable but at a very I just think it's a real you have to already know what he, the thing is I think for any of the decree you have to already know everything that Lacan thinks before you can make sense of what he's what he's doing. I just worked on a project, and I think these are valuable actually. So um, there, there, it's a three volume series of uh, line by line readings of every acre. And I did one on Signification of the Phallus, but there's a really good one on Khan of Exod written by this guy, Danny Nobis, who's a really smart guy. So those are helpful, I think. If you if, if anyone is really committed to the Acre, I think having those as the accompaniment is is absolutely necessary. Nice. So I don't want to derail us too much on this conversation, but I it was interesting. So the person that I'm referring to, they have a really interesting kind of Marxist, uh, like a theological Marxist take and we're talking about sort of how through Zizek and Lacan like there's a there's a space to kind of develop some sort of uh, universal I guess ethic or something there and which is really kind of fascinating to me and like totally outside of what kind of like the track that I'm on so I'm kind of really fascinated by that so I don't know if that's something that you could even speak to just for even briefly. I do. I think that, you know, part of Zizek's concern with universalism is is tied to his interest in Hegel as well, who's very much a universalist philosopher. And I think I actually have a book coming out on universality and identity politics, which is, addresses this very question and it identifies universality with what's missing or what's absent and lack rather than this thing that gets imposed on people. It's instead the thing that's always missing. So I think that's the tie to theology too, because theology is all about the missing signifier and 
And that's why I think there's a real uh, correspondence between Lacan and theology and I, I, so, and, and, and some kind of, uh, I think, eschatological Marxism really fits in well with what he's, what he's thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll just go hop in because um, I think the real focus of the conversation I want it to be on sort of the Lacan- Lacanian conception of desire and sort of exploring that idea as sort of the primary discussion topic today, which I have found just endlessly fascinating. This is one of the most fascinating ideas that I've stumbled upon. And I just, I'm absolutely just, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, a, I, th- I agree. I think it's a really revolutionary way of thinking about desire. And it's, you know, it takes as its point of departure Freud's discovery of the unconscious and then kind of goes out of that. And, and Lacan himself developed it over the course of his career. So there's a, there's a period where he conceives of the objet ah, and that's like, it does, it doesn't exist early on. And then it's around the eighth seminar on transference that he has the first hint of it. And then it really develops in the 10th seminar on anxiety. So this is early 1960s. And that's where, so once he gets objet ah, and what objet ah allows him to do is to differentiate between the object that causes our desire and the object that we desire. And that's a hu- once you get that distinction, I think that's a huge thing. And the objet ah, and I think this is paradoxical, and that's what makes it interesting, I think, is that it's the it's not the thing that we're trying to get. It's actually the thing that the obstacle to the thing that we're trying to get. I often in teaching this, I'll bring bring in a can of Coke and I'll say, so the object of my desire clearly is the substance within the can, the Coke that I want to drink, right? But the objet ah is the can itself. And I think it makes sense if you think, if I just had a spigot that just unleashed an unlimited amount of Coke into my mouth, it would no, I would have no more desire for Coke. I would be, it would, it would, I would be suffused with Coke. But the limit of the can makes it desirable. And I think it's interesting that a can for my, to me uh, of soda is more desirable than a big 20 ounce bottle precisely because of the limit that it puts on what you can have. So that notion of objet ah as the obstacle or as the limit, I think is really, is, is a crucial breakthrough in how we conceive of desire. Because I think prior to, prior to Lacan saying that or discovering that, if just desire, we, we just have the object of desire, we pursue it and that's it. Right. And then we get it and then we go on to another object. Let's to back up a little bit. Sure. Just in terms of introducing us to maybe the. OK, so the Lacanian idea of desire is primarily centered around the lack. And again, our armchair semiotician is my thought is, OK, so this is this lack is related to being enmeshed or introduced into the symbolic order. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely correct. Right. Like, so you're a lacking subject because you're a speaking being. That's his, that's his basic, I hate to say it's an axiom because I think it's deduced from the way in which we're speak, the way in which we exist in language that he thinks that you can never, and this is tied to the idea of unconscious, that you can never say exactly where you are so in language so that so that he he the terms he uses is the difference between the subject of the enunciation and the subject of the enunciated contact content sorry so if i say i went to the store the i that says i went to the store is different from the i in the sentence that goes to the store so that split lacan puts that in parallel with the split between 
the conscious and unconscious or between what I am and what I mean. So those, those are all these kind of ways in which the subject is split, but they all kind of come down to this, to this, this break between subject of the enunciation and subject of the, it's said differently and it's translated differently, subject of the enunciated content or subject of the statement. Oftentimes you'll see people say, so that, that break within subjectivity is why the subject is lacking and it can never catch up to itself. So it's always a lacking subject. That's you're right. That's the, that's the point at which, and, and for him, lack is desire, right? So those, those two are this, they're basically the same. Like you, you would just, they're utterly equivalent to say you're a lacking subject to say you're a desiring subject. And part of that, um, that, is related to sort of is that related to the mirror stage in terms of the development? Yeah, I mean, I I, I tend not to talk almost ever about the mirror stage, but um, the mirror stage is really about when the it's not really about that split in language. It's about the way in which the ego is emerges as a thing that covers over the split in subjectivity. So the mirror stage is basically about how we get a sense of ourselves as whole, not as split as a way of evading that sense of us as lacking, desiring subjects. So near stage is for him, it's a necessary error, but it's an error that the, that the subject makes in identifying itself with a mirror image, which it takes as its own ego. So his, his point there is that the ego is not, and this is why that essay was so famous, that the ego is not part of the self. It's actually formed through an identification with the figure of the other that you see in the mirror. Interesting. So let's see what other. So there's related terms such as jouissance that ties into right jouissance or enjoyment. Right, right. So often it's often translated as enjoyment or it's just not translated. And what's interesting is that the French word jouissance means so jouir in French the verb means to also to enjoy but to orgasm. Right. So it has a much more like enjoyment in English doesn't quite connote that, but it also. to, to have you can have the jouissance use of something so that like say I have a property and this is actually true like it, this is a this is a thing in Vermont like I can I can own a property and the state can have the jouissance use of it that is that they can they can make sure that I'm not allowed to drill I'm not allowed to cut down the trees so that would be like the jouissance even though I own it they have the jouissance use of it uh, that's an actual legal term in French. In America, we don't obviously don't say that. Um, but that that I think so. So the, the the notion is, and I think that's nicely that that this opposition between owning something and jouissance is important for him. And desire is related to jouissance as well. So so what drives our desire is this experience of jouissance that we identify with objet a. So objet a is correlated to jouissance and becomes the thing that we're constantly driving after and never ever getting. So the, and, and then so there's two different related experiences of jouissance. One that's impossible, one that we're trying to get but never can get, which would be some idea of fullness or some idea of completion. And then there's the jouissance of the drive or desire itself. And so that's eminently gettable. Like you get that, you experience that all the time, but you experience it through your lack. So one jouissance is what he would call imaginary. He has these, you mentioned these three registers, symbolic, imaginary, and real. So one jouissance is imaginary and complete, which is also tied to the mirror sage because that's the image of completeness and full jouissance. Um, 
and the other one is derived from lack itself and comes from the experience, the jouissance of desiring or of being, of being driven after some object. I think I've heard of the first formulation of jouissance being described as like it would be, like it would be unbearable pleasure. Right. I think that's a good way to put it. Is that accurate? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. So it's, it's like, it's, you could say it's too much pleasure. I hear people sometimes say pleasure and pain. So it's, it's an excess of pleasure that becomes painful. And, but there's also, I mean, that I think is the big way of understanding jouissance, but I also think there are little moments of jouissance all the time in your life, like a little, like a little exchange on the, on the street corner that you have with someone that can be a moment of jouissance. So I think that, it, I think it's, I think there are two, there are almost two different registers of it. One, this, this pleasure and pain, this when you're overcome with jouissance and these other just everyday moments of jouissance that come throughout your life. Outside of that. Okay. So outside of sort of this basis of lack and desire being kind of synonymous, right? Caused due to the discrepancy between the signifier and the signified. Am right. I, am I on the yeah. Track? Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. What else would you say, like, is it important to delve into, like, you mentioned the symbolic, the real, and the imaginary? Like, yeah. how does, is there sort of a tie-in, or is that more of a, is that going down a different path? No, it's it's tied in. I mean, it's all, the, his theory, it, really, it all kind of comes together. Uh, so symbolic is the system of signifiers that create all the signification that surrounds us in our lives. Um, you know, it's language, but it's also things have ideological things that have signification that we like, uh, the American flag is a big signifier, even though it's not a word. Um, so all that system of symbolic structure, our desire fits into that, but his idea, and so this is tied to the way, so this is how desire fits into the symbolic desire is driven by what's by what's missing within the symbolic. So this is how the tie between objet a and symbolic functions. So objet a is this real absence within the symbolic that drives our desire. So his idea is that we're driven by desire. We we desire when things don't, there's something that doesn't really work out, that something doesn't seem to fit. Like there's some... Some like uh, I think there's a scene in Matrix where the I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a there's a there's a there's a moment where Keanu Reeves has a deja vu of a cat going by, and they're like deja vu. That's a that's a glitch in the Matrix, and that's where the the other someone has intervened. And so those moments of glitch are in some sense moments where the object emerges or when the real emerges, and that's where what what inaugurates our desire. That's what drives our desire. We're driven by not, our desire isn't driven by what perfectly accords within the symbolic, but what doesn't really add up and what doesn't fit in. And it, I mean, when, even when you're walking that, like if you see someone that, that draws your, that attracts you, that fits within your fantasy space and you start to desire them, it's because in some way they don't fit in perfectly with in your symbolic universe, like either, either they're more attractive than what your symbolic universe allows for, or they're, they, you know, uh, this is an example Savo uses a lot of, of Marilyn Monroe's, um, little, what's it called? Like a birthmark on her face. Like that, that, that her attractiveness is precisely that little thing that is a 
barrier to her full attractiveness is the thing that makes her desirable and attractive. That, that, that You cannot separate someone's attractiveness from this little thing that makes them not fit in or, or, or not exactly perfect, not perfectly fitting within the symbolic. That's incredibly, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's mind-blowing. Um, I'm curious, have you ever, so I'm a big uh, fan of Baudrillard, and it feels like at least, I mean, there's definitely overlap in terms. I wonder, do you have any exposure to his work? And I'm thinking specifically with the uh, the book Symbolic Exchange and Death, because I feel like there's got to be, because uh, he is sort of doing a little bit of a merging of a, of a post-Marxist kind of analysis of the sign itself in terms of its political economy, but also draw he draws a little bit, I think, on a kind of psychoanalytic framework as well from Yeah, he I does Lefebvre was his Armory Lefebvre, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't I mean I know Baudrillard some, but I don't know him probably well enough to I don't know that particular work, so I, I I can't comment on it. But but yeah, I think the way I mean I just especially the early ones, like uh the political economy of the sign, like I think he's someone who's trying to think about the way in which uh, political economy has transferred into this symbolic realm. And so that that's today, that's where a lot of the real political that's, that has become a political terrain. So I think he, that's a major innovation on his part. I mean, and, and I, I think now we just accept that as, as just, that's true. Like it's not just economic struggles for Marxism. It's also struggles in terms of the symbolic, you know, Gramsci has this notion of a war of position. And I think that idea is really sort of fits in with that idea of fighting these symbolic struggles as well. You, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that too, because I think part of the attraction to Lacan's psychoanalysis in general is I have this overwhelming urge that there is some tie between sort of this this fascistic energy or the, that there's something there that can only be addressed through or understood or analyzed through psychoanalysis and not through um, sort of a more materialist kind of uh, position. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. I think that the, all of these contemporary right-wing explosions are just, expo I mean, it seems like the term jouissance was made to describe them, right? Like that's what, that's precisely what it feels like to be at a Trump rally is to experience jouissance. And that's what he's selling to people that come to those rallies. So I feel like that's, and you know, at times it's a murderous jouissance too. I think as we, as you know, down near where you are, I think we just saw that. Like I think, and I feel like that's, I absolutely agree with you that unless it's addressed on the level of, of, of its psychic benefit that he get like the, the P I think if I read another editorial that says Trump's people are going to abandon him if the economy like, no, I mean, the point is, right. yeah, it's deeper than that. It's so much deeper. Yeah. It's a, it's a, there's a psychic appeal that he has. And, 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 and I think it's interesting. I mean, to me, the most interesting one is the religious right, because I, I feel like, there's all this notion that it's a transaction between Trump and the religious right. He'll nominate their judges. They support him. They look the other way. But I think that's, again, completely obviating the psychic dimension of the way in which he acts out precisely the way in which they would like to, they fantasize about acting out. So I feel like, you know, he's the perfect messenger. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm firmly convinced that if Pence, who's sensibly a devout believer if he was president he would be nowhere near as supported by the evangelical community as 
as Trump is. So I think that's a, to me that it just it cries out for some for psychoanalytic understanding, and and it's not given anywhere in the in the what he would call the lamestream media. I mean, there's just not any, there's not, it's all a very kind of traditional economic and consciously political analysis of what's going on. In listening to your, the episode that you and Ryan released last week about the sort of incel phenomenon, you mentioned something that I think ties in here too, is this notion of, it was, I, the, uh, not the archetypical father, but there was a, a term you used. The primal father? Sort of the, yes, yes. Primal father. That was the terminology. And I think maybe that is something that Trump kind of represents. Yeah, it's a great point by you. I think it's really true that Trump... So so the prime, the idea of the primal father comes from Freud's book, Totem and Taboo. And the primal father, in Freud's theory, which is a crazy theory... I mean, he really believed it was true, but it's clearly just mythical. Um, the primal father has a monopoly on all women in this primal horde. And then he thought Freud thought society begins when all the sons get together and say, we're not going to take this anymore. And they kill the primal father. And then they have this totem meal to celebrate the death of the every year. And then, so he, 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 he took the Eucharist as an example of the totem meal of the killing of the prime. So anyway, so there's a whole thing he has, it does with that. It's in the, the, toward the end of totem and taboo. And, and that primal father, I mean, I think, is a figure of pure jouissance. I mean, that's what, the, and so of completely unlimited jouissance. And I think that's the fantasy that Trump really, uh, really, you know, catches into. And I, I, I feel like the more, and it's interesting because I think the more coverage goes about how he's violated every norm, he's like, no, that do you understand that that's actually feeding into that's the image want, of yeah. him as a primal father, right? So it, like, the more he violates every the prior norm, yeah. the more he fits exactly what the people want. So I think, you know, I'm 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 not, I'm, not, I'm I'm pretty sanguine about him not being reelected, but I do think that that that, that all these ways of responding to him they seem so symptomatic of 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 the way that we constantly miss the way that the psyche is is at work. It's funny because my father who is definitely, I mean, I grew up in sort of a Southern Baptist kind of, that was my uh, milieu, you know, from the time I was a child till I was 18. And looking at my own father, who I often refer to as one of these Christian fascists, like that's his outlook is not so much the, the, like the Christ figure of the new Testament, but he really enjoys the, kind of the Old Testament fire and brimstone right. vision. And I think there's some there that there's some kind of link there as well into that primal father idea. Right. No, I think that's absolutely history. true. It's absolutely true. My I, I, I grew up in a fundamentalist house too, so I I'm I'm very sympathetic to that. Definitely, yeah. I'm I'm pretty much an anarchist um, <laughs> of some stripe or another. Well that's a good way to break. <laughs> and so yeah, we definitely we butt heads a lot. Um but I I got him a little bit the other day on, I was kind of pointing out, well, we're already sort of producing everything socially. It's just sort of privatized in these little corporations. What if we took that and distributed that amongst the people? And that kind of like, I, I kind of cracked his his shell there a little bit. Wow, that that's idea. good. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, yeah, that's a good, that's a nice intervention. But he's so tied to that kind of 
religious element and again that kind of old testament kind of righteousness that i don't think he would ever embrace any kind of left position just because of that specifically i know it's but it strikes me as it's so against you know i i i i i'm a i'm a big like i in my book on hegel i wrote a lot about um his relationship to christianity and i've thought about a lot about christianity and it seems so averse to the fundamental christian message and it's just it strikes me as just so strange that it's not that it's taught it's like wrapped up in this package that's completely it's completely opposed to yeah it really is it's really negation yeah yeah um, but I want to talk to you because I thought your the episode on the incel phenomenon was was quite quite interesting and really kind of giving a concrete way to to really explore Lacan's ideas in a really kind of concrete way. And that let's see, you guys were talking about how the sort of the germ behind misogyny being that sort of this perception that the that women or females do not experience this per, this lack or that perception. Right, right, right. It's interesting because I think that our tendency is to view misogyny as um, condemning women to being just lacking subjects, right? And and like the men, men strong, not lacking. But I think it's actually the incel phenomenon shows that it's more, the, much more the opposite. That it's it's this fantasy that women don't lack, that they're figures of pure enjoyment, pure jouissance. And that they and that and and the, and the the final twist is that they their enjoyment takes place at the expense of certain men. Like they they by by marginalizing certain men, that that's how they enjoy themselves. So I think it's really I mean it's a horrifying phenomenon, but it, it's a really instructive one for seeing how the logic of misogyny is, is it can can work itself out in a really concrete way just like you said yeah and also the, i don't know how well versed you in and the whole incel phenomenon but this uh this notion of the chad are you familiar with this at all i do not know that no enlighten me i know so that i mean honestly the chad is a kind of a great metaphor for this uh primal father idea to be honest. So who is the so chad? The, is it? The chad is and you'll see this in memes a okay. lot is you have the chad the chad so and so versus the virgin what have you right? So you would have the chad is the primal father that has the access I see. to I see. sexual prowess or whatever all the success and all that you know all of that sort of thing. That that's funny that that that, that hits home with me because that's my brother's name who was much more six <laughs> he was much more had much many more girlfriends than I ever had and I always thought he was he was four years younger than me and yet you know like wildly more experienced and so I was constantly like Chad would have been the appropriate name for my if I had been an incel that would have been the name I would have chosen for the primal father. Now, I haven't delved into this personally myself, but there is, so within the incel community too, there's a kind of a weird, uh, like they take a sick kind of, I don't know if I don't want to necessarily call it sick, but there's kind of a perverse enjoyment in their incel-ism as well. Like they will, there's like a self-flagellation right. element of it. Too. Right. I think, don't you think that that's really, I mean, I think in, in that way it exposes the true nature of enjoyment because enjoyment, I would just say enjoyment, jouissance always involves some degree of self-sacrifice. And I think that's why, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that the, there's so much support for the military because this idea that, you know, we support the troops, not, 
because we're worried that they're going to die, but because they're going to die, like that sacrifice is how we enjoy the troops. And I think, you know, every, every, and I, when you find jouissance as pleasure and pain, that sense of sacrifice, I think is absolutely essential for, for any kind of enjoyment that, that it has to, in some way. And, you know, you might think of it even in this way, that it has to cost you something like, you know, part of the fun of part of, or part of the enjoyment rather of, of, of buying a new car is that it, it costs a lot, right? Like it, and I think the cost, and and it's interesting that Freud was aware of this in terms of psychoanalysis. That he thought you could never give psychoanalysis away for free; that it just wouldn't work, because the the patient had to feel like they it was costing them something, or they wouldn't think they could get anything from it. So that <laughs> that notion of sacrifice is, I think, really. It's funny because I think in some ways. We think the modern world is a world free of sacrifice. Like we don't sacrifice virgins anymore. We don't, you know, we, we don't sacrifice animals. Uh, but I think there are all these other ways that we really do sacrifice. And I think, you know, uh, oftentimes we disavow it, but I still think it's operative. I think a good example of that, it would be, okay, so it's and perfect because we're recording on a Sunday. So let's say I get a, I get a text from a friend and they're like, hey, let's go out. And there's almost that, like that, putting that limit of oh, okay, I'm I can go out, but I'm gonna feel like crap tomorrow when I go in early, right? Like that's also a great example of sort of how that works. Right, right, exactly. Like the the like the whole idea of I mean, why is alcohol? I mean, part of its popularity is that it, it it's it's a real sacrifice that you make that. You make it the next morning for what you, the fun you had before. You, I mean, there's all ways in which there's sacrifice involved with that. You sacrifice brain cells. I mean, I think, you know, like think about the kinds of, I, I often like, this is one way I like to think of it. Like the, think about the kinds of foods that are enjoyable. Like if you know the food is harming you, it just tastes better. And if like, if there was a broccoli, I like broccoli, but if there was a broccoli cake that tasted just as good as a chocolate, I think people wouldn't. They wouldn't like it. Like part of the part of what makes ice cream or cake taste good is that it, it you know that it's damaging you when you're eating it. So that so I think that Lacan allows us this distinction between pleasure and jouissance. And so pleasure is just the good feeling. It doesn't have to anything to do with sacrifice. But I think jouissance or enjoyment always has something has the sacrificial element to it. Uh, kind of moving on a little bit, but I think still kind of keeping on the same thread of desire. I've had this sort of formulation about how capitalism is affecting us through psychoanalysis in that it's kind of, I call it, this is a very crude term, but I'm going to say it kind of like, it's sort of stepping on, it's like pressing its finger down on your button of like the, like your genitalia of your, of your, of your psychic realm right and it's saying yeah. you know it's mashing that button down and kind of holding it down and saying okay here's all these desires here's you know this multitude of desires that it presents you with but then the the kicker is that it's always going to introduce a scarcity and there's a psychic cost of that or there's a there's a ennui or there's some type of negative reaction in terms of how it's operating that is sort of behind a lot of i think I don't know, disorder or I don't know, just generally speaking. Yeah, no, I think it's what what you said is really great. Like, I, I feel like 
exactly like you describe it. Like there's this, this impulse command to enjoy yourself in all these different ways, especially libidinal ways, just like you said. And then there's always the introduction of scarcity. You know, capitalism cannot, it cannot exist without the idea of scarcity. And it's interesting to me that economics as a discipline actually requires scarcity. So there's a way in which economics as a discipline is, is not just, it's not just an analysis of capitalism, but it's utterly tied to capitalism, to the, the, the future existence of capitalism, because the economists would no longer have a job if we didn't live in the society of scarcity that capitalism demands. So I think it's really important that that scarcity is, is constantly reinforced. I also think that, that there's something much more, even though this seems strange, I think there's something much more comforting about scarcity than about abundance. Because I think if you think about it, scarcity lets you think, if only there wasn't scarcity, I would be really right. enjoying myself. But if you live in a world of abundance, you got no excuses. You're like, look, I'm not, I'm feeling unfulfilled. I'm feeling I'm not satisfied, and yet there's abundance everywhere. Why aren't I? And so I feel like there's a real, there's an almost terror of abundance and a terror of, because I think you pointed in, in what you said, you said to your father, there, we're perfectly capable of creating a world of abundance right now in, what, in the amount that we produce. Uh, and, and yet we enforce scarcity. And I think it's... Of course, it's to sustain the capitalist regime, but I think it's also because there's a horror of abundance from all of us. And I think too, it's almost it's kind of linked to that metaphor, that idea of the the limiting the 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 object maybe in that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really true, right? Like the like capitalism is constantly introducing these limiting objects to stop us from fully being able to have more than we desire, right? They're constantly saying, look, there's only so much of these. There's only limited, this is a limited edition of this. And, or only a certain number of people can get this. You have to have a certain amount of money to get this. All these ways in which the limit is constantly reintroduced by capitalism. And then also just making the promise that I, it can fulfill, like this object is going to fulfill the, your lack or your desire and then it's sort of that kind of like a matador, right? Constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good image. I think absolutely, right? Like, I don't think any commodity would be successful if it didn't have the promise of absolute fulfillment of lack attached to it. Like, I think every single commodity that we buy, even a nail at the hardware store, has that attached to it. And I think... I've said this before, but I think that the, that in a certain way, romance provides the absolute paradigm for capitalism. That is that you capitalism says you should be searching for your soulmate who will eliminate your lack like that. If you saw the movie Jerry Maguire, it's an unfortunate film, but um, <laughs> he said he says to her, you complete me. Right. And that notion of the soulmate completing you and thus you eliminating your lack, I feel like that's the logic of every commodity so that capitalism really sells a promise of completion in everything that it sells. And that's the real thing. That's what's really on the market. You mentioned romance and it makes me think of sort of romance, not in a, like in the sexual dynamic, but the romance of, let's say the, uh, 
of like the of uh, the fantasy, the fiction, like the I don't that genre sort of fiction, and especially with the emergence of the Game of Thrones as such like a cultural phenomenon. Like yeah, I think that there's maybe a different element too. Like that is offering us something on a psychoanalytic level as well as sort of this imaginary realm where the like there is i don't know i can't even really kind of complete the thought entirely but it's a space for us to sort of imagine a world where there is kind of a completeness or there's a a justice or something that we don't have access to in our in our lived reality yeah i think that's right I think that's right. I think all this, you know, there's a plethora of these fan, there's a ton of fantasy novels that are written today, but, but game of Thrones would be the fantasy, the the ultimate fantasy television series. And I feel like it's, it's definitely proffering this thing, this image of a world lack free where there, and also a world full of enjoyment, like sexual enjoyment that we, that would is considered incorrect today. So I think that's a huge thing. I think that's, that's, a, there's a real fantasy for this past time when there weren't all the barriers of, of, you know, sexual harassment and things like this, that, that people are concerned about. I think that's the, the, the fantasy of that is very palpable today. I think too, more so too is uh, maybe a more basic element of it is this desire for a true, like a very clear, distinct, evil or bad force yeah. to fight against. Yeah. And so therefore, I mean, that's the logic of star Wars too, right? Like the, that the, this pure evil that has no, that we don't have to have any complication in it. Like we just know the emperor is evil and he can be defeated. And there's something, so yeah. there's something kind of comforting in that narrative that kind of then lulls that desire in ourselves. Yeah, I think so. I think it, I think it, because desire is evil right like, like like we all have evil within us and evil is tied to our desire it's tied to our enjoyment and I, if we can just displace that onto the other figure of the other then that allows us to avoid confronting our own unconscious right like that's how that's the that's the way the figure of pure evil always functions interesting um, in terms of my own psychology i'm always like i've always lamenting desire like i consider desire is is like a sort of a prison almost it's something that i just feel like i can't ever escape i'm forever the bull that's chasing the matador but i'm always you know what i mean yeah 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 i know i know what you mean um but i guess that you know lacan has this idea this he only says it one time he says it in seminar 11 um that that we can traverse the fantasy and and his idea about and that idea is that you can you can recognize that all you really have is that fantasy and that there's no way to get beyond it so that you're so that the thing that you feel harassed by and, and, and stuck in is like that's constitutive of you so that there's no there's no like I think the only relief is that you no longer look for a beyond to that I mean so I think that's his that's his basic idea I don't know how comforting that is I mean, it's not that comforting at all but right uh, yeah actually that's I'm glad you brought that up though because is that kind of what you were mentioning as sort of the I kind of kind of what Lacan was getting at in terms of desire. It was not. It was. I can't remember the phrasing. It was something about sort of overcoming this, um, overcoming desire. That's not exactly the formulation of what you said. But I. I can't. 
No, it's so his. So at one point he writes or says that the only the, the ethical position is not to give ground relative to your desire. So that's an interesting. So so the idea is that who and again this is in keeping with what I just said that the, who you are is your desire, and that rather than think this is something I need to overcome or I need to find a new fantasy, I need to get into I, I need to get out of this this prison of my desire that seems to constantly but to realize to embrace it as this is this is who i am this is what constitutes me and there's a there's he thinks there's something ethical in that embrace of your desire Hmm. but of course it's not about getting the object right so so in a certain sense you're embracing not getting the object because because desire is not it's it's only like the, the failure of desire is desire but is desire for him. So it's not like, it's not like when he says, don't give ground relative to your desire, he's saying, go out and succeed and tear down all the barriers. No, in fact, he's saying, no, recognize that you enjoy the barrier and, and, and be fine with that. So there's a way in which he's, you know, like, I think it actually is, can be helpful in a relationship when you think like, I mean, obviously sometimes relationships are just bad and you should get out of them, but sometimes you can think, the thing that annoys me about this person is integral to the thing that I love about this person. And so I think that idea is a very psycho, like that's how psychoanalysis can, I think, really help you in terms of like a day-to-day thing. Right. Kind of that thin line between love and hate idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I know that you're also kind of a, a film buff and, uh, and have written a few books on film too. So I'm curious, I just screened this film possession by Zulowski. Are you familiar with this film? I do not know that film. I know the old, I know possessed the old, uh, Betty Davis film, but I don't, or Joan Crawford, I forget, but no, I don't know possession. No. Oh, wow. I, th- I feel like this is definitely one I would recommend. I think it definitely lends itself to uh, kind of the Lacanian framework. Okay, good. I'll check it out. Because it's very, and very much too, I think this discussion we had about sort of the incel phenomenon too, because that's sort of so it's basically this kind of almost semi-autobiographical story of Zulowski who's a a Polish filmmaker and uh, he was married and him and his wife had a nasty kind of divorce and he ended up looking after their son and so forth so that was kind of the autobiographical aspect of it but it's this really kind of descent into madness between these two people and their kind of idealized Love affair. I mean, it's it's so ripe. I would definitely recommend checking it out. I think you would uh, you would definitely enjoy it. Okay, definitely. Actually, I did cool. A I definitely will. Recently, but I couldn't quite articulate some of the ideas that I really wanted to get at from this sort of Lacanian focus. But tell me about. Uh, so I, I see you had written some stuff on Christopher Nolan. You've written on. I forget. There's another. There's like I saw. There's a Fight Club clip on the on the cover of one yeah that, oh that's a yeah that's a collection of essays i actually i think fight club appears now and again in things that i write because i love it as an example but i don't think i've ever written an essay on it but i have a book on spike lee christopher nolan and then david lynch so those are the three people i've i've devoted a whole book to which is a makes you kind of crazy after reading, you know, cause you have to go back and back and back and back and watch. So I, I still, so I wrote that David Lynch book in 2007. I still haven't rewatched. 
I watched the Twin Peaks thing, obviously, but I haven't rewatched a David Lynch film since then. <laughs> and it, and the Christopher Nolan one I did in 2012, I haven't reseen any of those films. So it's a real, just, you just get kind of sick of people you like, and it's not a fun, it's not a fun thing to have happen to you. Right. But now, I, I mean, I still like them, but you know, it's just hard to hard to watch. And the sort of the essays, the books you've written, are, is this in sort of an application of? Lacan or Hegel or kind of what are you what sort of lens are you looking yeah they're mostly psychoanalytic sure and the, the Nolan one is more Hegelian the Lynch one is very Lacanian um, the Spike Lee one kind of I don't know it's it's sort of a it's maybe the least of anything it's more it's more about actually that's not true it's more about excess and jouissance and and in Spike Lee's films so so yeah so there's there's they're, they're different there's um, but then, you know, I, the problem is of course, too, that you try to make everything fit within a certain, like I have an idea of Lynch and, and I, I got the idea basically from Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway. And then I went back to all his other films and tried to make them fit into this. And it's like, ah, okay. Yeah. It kind of works, but not that well. But the Spike Lee one, I think came off the best actually. Um, and Nolan then unfortunately they keep some of you know because they're alive they keep making films and then and Nolan made Dunkirk and it completely went against everything I thought so um so that was um you know he obviously it's his prerogative but, but it maybe shows that the book is wrong right I uh yeah. kind of my favorite I actually did a podcast on um the prestige that's the one that I really kind of identify. Uh, it's the masterpiece, I think. I think everybody that knows Nolan thinks that that's the masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. My 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 two I have twin boys, and they're 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 like, no, no, it's Inception. I'm like, don't you know? You're showing oh, you're on, showing man. your ignorance there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh gosh, Inception. I did not care for it at all. I I fell asleep during that one. Well. I, my reading is that you're supposed to think that the hero is a dupe and he's wrong the whole time. And that's the only way I was able to kind of like with Nolan, the, I found myself the most kind of stretching to make the films, especially the Batman ones to make them kind of fit into what I wanted to say. Um, but yeah, so, but, but yeah, Inception, it's okay, but yeah, it's not, it's not prestige. Prestige is a great, it's a great, great movie. I really wish he would go back to making the small films because I really, I mean, that's probably the last one that I really enjoyed on a, on a, you know, really high level that kind of fits in my top. I mean, it's one of my top five or six films ever that I love. Well, the first four were great, right? Like, so there's Following, which I think was an excellent little cheap film. And then Memento is amazing. And then Insomnia, I thought was pretty good. And then, and then uh, Prestige. So, or maybe Batman Begins was before that, was it? I think it was. Yeah, I think he did Batman Begins in between because that's why Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. The but Prestige is just. I mean, that's one of the maybe fifty best films ever made. I think it's really, it's really good. Yeah. Hard agree. Okay. Hard agree. Um, what uh, what's on your, what sort of filmmakers do you kind of look at, or do you get excited about when you see the news that they have something coming up that they're making something well lynch for sure so when he made that the twin peaks return i definitely i got showtime just to watch that <laughs> uh who else nolan i'm excited when he makes sense i i really like sophia coppola i mean i really loved lost in translation and then i 
got progressively more disappointed after that, but I still am excited when she's making a film. Uh, Spike Lee, I still, I still like his films, even though the most recent ones haven't been that, that great. Um, I feel like, uh, I can think of people I'm not excited. Like I'm not excited <laughs> when Quentin Tarantino makes a film. <laughs> so this last one, I, I mean, I, we were actually thinking about doing a, a negative podcast, but we both feel like that's a, we're, we're both have a little reluctance to just devote an hour to trashing Trash, something. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, I definitely thought it was his most kind of self-indulgent and I'm somewhat of a quote unquote amateur filmmaker as well. I was just like, if someone else, if you weren't Quentin Tarantino and you turned in the script, they would tell you to, they would destroy that. There was no way they would ever in a million years green light that script, which is kind of upsetting. Right. I mean, they could have cut an hour out of it, first of all, right? Like, it was just, it was a lot of just unnecessary long shots. Anyway, um, so that's a, that's a negative example. I, 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 I tell, oh, I love David Fincher. So Fincher, I'm excited when, when he comes out with something. Soderbergh, I'm excited. Um, I usually like F. Gary Gray films. He's there, he, most recently, not so much. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of filmmakers that I'm, I'm, I'm usually excited. I usually like almost everything. Like I saw, I saw this most recent, this is embarrassing. I saw this most recent Fast and the Furious on IMAX and it, it was okay. Like it was a little too long, but it was all right. You know, I feel like you can always find something that's an interesting idea, even in almost the most crappy film. So definitely. Um, <laughs> that kind of reminds me, have you ever, are you familiar with uh, do you do Twitter much? Or I, I have no, no Twitter at all. No, no yeah, Twitter at all. Yeah. So it's really, this is one of my favorite uh, Twitter accounts is it's called the Institute of Gremlins two studies. Wow. <laughs> yes. So it really is that it really, I mean, it's a, no, it's, it's a joke in a sense, but the analysis that the account ru- uses is very much like it's rooted in semiotics and it's very much pretty astute. Um, analysis that's pretty cool that's really cool applied to gremlins too and it's just it's really good yeah it's quite good they don't post that frequently anymore but wow i have to i'll have to email you some of them yeah i would like to see those i think it would be definitely up your alley it's very like it's very based in the kind of semiotics and kind of a like post-structuralist kind of lens yeah looking at, at gremlins too that sounds cool and it's really funny. The I don't know if this is legitimate or not, but the person that runs the account, they posted the other day. They had I, I don't know if they had messaged uh, Frederick Jameson somehow <laughs> about Gremlins too. <laughs> and he responded. And he responded. And he was just like basically this line. Oh uh, well, all they all they care about is reproducing this kind of nostalgic so and so, and like he had never seen the film. Oh, uh, really that movie. is funny. Yeah, his notion of this on I can imagine that that his notion of nostalgia for the present would fit right into that idea. You know, he's like he's in his mid eighties. He's still he's not even emeritus. He's still teaching, taking on graduate students, and it's pretty amazing. It's really interesting. I, have you seen that? Actually, have you seen Gremlins two? I have not seen Gremlins two. You have not seen no, it. No. Oh, it's it's quite fascinating in a lot of ways because it is, and this was sort of I think it came out in. I want to say the early, early nineties. And it sort of predicted a number of developments. Like there was a cooking channel. Um, there was this CEO sort of figure that was very reminiscent of a Trump Ted Turner hybrid and so forth. 
Wow, I should check it out. I should, I should show my, I should show my boys True Gremlins and one and two, and that would be a good way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. But it was just sort of, I've, you know, you mentioned Fast and the Furious and how there can always be some sort of little nugget you could, yeah, something. yeah. No, I <laughs> so think that it, that immediately came into mind. Yeah, that's I totally, I completely believe that. Yeah, because yeah. I will often, I'll do, because um, I, like I said, I'm kind of an amateur filmmaker on the side too, so I have a little bit of exposure to a little bit of production and writing, but then also like this sort of semiotic analysis too. So I kind of like will mash that all and I'll go through like writing and acting and, and so forth and then yeah. finish up on sort of a thematic semiotic analysis. And then I'll just try to put some kind of spin, whether it be like a Marxist critique or whether it be a postmodern critique or something like that. Oh, that's really but cool. I find, yeah. I find quite fun. Yeah. The yeah. exercise of it is, is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, back back to Lacan, um, what one thing that kind of struck me as very fascinating, and you could probably speak to this a lot better than I can because I'm sort of ignorant of a lot of Hegel. It would be I was really kind of shocked at sort of how Hegelian he is. Yeah, that's really true, and I think it's more true than he himself thought. So he was a student of he learned philosophy basically from this. Great, probably the greatest Hegel scholar of the 20th century, Alexander Kozhev, who taught a seminar in France in the 30s and taught all these people like uh, Merleau-Ponty, Bataille, all these really well-known thinkers. And Lacan was in his seminar and he... So Kozhev's basic starting point was the master-slave dialectic in the phenomenology of spirit. And he basically reads the rest of Hegel through that struggle for recognition. And, and that became Lacan's uh, way of thinking about Hegel. So he initially, so f seminar up through maybe seminar three or four, he thinks he's developing Hegel's thought, but he's really developing Kozhev's thought. And then he breaks from Hegel, breaks from Kozhev, that is, around seminar seven, seminar eight. And, and then really sees himself as anti-Hegelian. But it's my claim, and I didn't invent this idea. It's maybe, it's Maladin Delar and Slavoj Žižek, the, they've also said this, but it's my idea that he really becomes Hegelian at the point when he thinks he's breaking from Hegel. So I think you're absolutely right. Like this conception of desire... I mean, I, I earlier made an, said an example about the way in which the end of psychoanalysis would function dialectically, right? Like you see the way in which the obstacle is the is essential to the thing that you desire. That's a very Hegelian sense of the way an object we relate to objects. So, I think he becomes Hegelian at the moment when he ceases to think that he's Hegelian, paradoxically. And you know what um, just came to mind? I didn't. I wanted to ask you this too because, and we were just talking about film, and I neglected to do so. Was what a? Do, have you delved much in? I think you actually no. You did. You wrote a book, if I'm not mistaken, about sort of the Lacanian the gaze. The gaze, right? So the gaze is an interesting concept. So that is developed first in seminar eleven, and it, the gaze is one of the versions of the objet. 
So the main two versions for Lacan are voice and gaze, and gaze is crucial. What's interesting is in film studies, thinking that it was based on Lacan, there got there developed this whole notion of gaze as oppressive, the male gaze that looks that that objectifies women, has nothing at all to do with Lacan's notion of the gaze. So part of what I did in this book, The Real Gaze, was try to wrench that concept back into the Lacanian turf and understand it in terms of the way we relate to this, what we see on the screen. That is, that we're drawn to these moments of the gaze, which are actually moments where something doesn't work or something goes it goes awry on the screen. So in, in, in the way that the filmmaker often, most often controls, right? Like, so, so the, 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 my favorite example probably is the end of Citizen Kane, where we see the, the, the object that has been the quest of us as spectators, the character, the reporter in the film. And in a sense, Kane himself is just this sled. And that's a moment where object ah manifests itself in the film. And, and I think as gays. And, and I think there, there I mean, there are just numerous other examples of this, the way in which gaze functions as this thing that we, as an absence within the filmic screen. And I think, you know, like uh, Italian realism, like Bicycle Thieves, for example, the, the way in which his discovery of the bike, the bike functions as gaze in that film, right? Because you're constantly searching for it and you never get it and it ends up just being fragmented and broken apart. And so, uh, and and you never encounter, like the whole film and Italian neorealism in general, I think is about this, the way we never encounter, the, the gaze drives us forward, but we never encounter it. And so I talk about different films in terms of the way they marshal the gaze for the spectator. And some films really bombard the spectator with the gaze. Others keep it at a distance like Italian neorealism, and then others have different kinds of relationships to it. And I, my claim is that the ideological relationship to the gaze is to show it and then to show it being mastered in some way. So most Spielberg films, I think, do this. Uh, Fast and the Furious does it. Uh, 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 Star Wars, I think, does it. So we get these encounters with this disturbing gaze, and then we find a way like Luke's able to defeat it because he follow, uses the force or something like, so there's all these ways in which the gaze gets term I use is domesticated. Um, and so that's, that's basically, so basically that's ideological cinema is the domestication of the gaze. And then a more radical cinema is the exploration of it. So the gaze would be something that is entirely, would you say it's entirely based on kind of an, on the, the narrative itself rather than like the camera acting as. No, I know what you're saying. I think it can be either one. So I think uh, it's a great question. And a lot of times it is, it is just the way the narrative is structured, like the Citizen Kane example I gave you. Although that one is in interesting because the camera is also moving in certain ways to like in the beginning, it, this is this pan up and or tilt up. Or what is it? It's a track up maybe. Um, there's all these different kinds of things. Uh, but, but there are other films where it's just the way in which the camera is moving. Like Spike Lee often uses this dolly shot that I think functions as gaze. Like it rips us out of the reality of his film and forces us to think differently about what we're seeing. So that's completely 
a camera effect, right? So I think it's, and, and I think a tracking shot can also, can use, can explore the gaze in a certain way, like the famous tracking shot at the beginning of Touch of Evil. That seems to me to be one that re- where it's really the movement of the camera that's exploring the gaze and not necessarily the narrative because narrative hasn't even started yet of the film. Interesting. Yeah, I actually recently did, I did an episode on the player as well that has that kind of same. Yeah, yeah. In fact, to... Yeah, they even evoke the t- touching the tracking shot. They even, and touch yeah, they talk about it in the dialogue in the yeah. in the shot and everything. Yeah. Um, but with Zulowski being fresh on my mind, it's he does a lot of handheld camera work. Yeah, which was kind of got me. That's why the germ of the question too, because he's doing this, and this sort of predates the uh, invention of the Steadicam. But he's sort of pulling yeah. off that same sort of Steadicam effect to, I think, I mean, just really dazzling camera work it's it's amazing like he'll will be he'll be in a room a pretty large room and the camera will literally circle all of the players in the scene and come back so that well that can be a way that they you know that can be playing with the gaze as well clearly yeah that's really great yeah it's quite it's really good um i would definitely you should i'm definitely going to watch it yeah his yeah. body of work now he has another film that's really interesting. It's it's a rough one, but it's called On the Silver Globe, I believe, that was this sci-fi masterpiece sort of film that went unfinished because he was he was working in the in Poland during the 70s right in the Eastern Bloc and so it was sort of controversial and they actually shut down production on the film and then he ended up sort of cobbling it eventually got released as sort of this cobbled together um collection of kind of scenes that were actually shot for the film but then he would have b-roll of i guess the subways and people just moving through the streets does it hold together or uh it's hard it's uh when i was actually i thought it was incomprehensible when i first watched it Uh (laughs) because it's like so you're trying to watch not only okay so it's in subtitles and the dialogue is very crazy and that's one thing that Zulowski sort of noticed for noted for too. It's kind of this very bombastic, hyperbolic, very like in-your-face symbolism and metaphor. Okay. So he's doing this, and these, you know, people describe the dialogue as just ranting lunatics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So trying to like cobble together this narrative through, you know, paying attention to the the movie itself and the the subtitles was super difficult but now like looking back and kind of reading people's analysis and description of the plot sounded really quite fascinating okay okay so if if you're willing to put the time into it i think that there's something really super fascinating going on and definitely related to um notions of religion and i think even communism and and so forth and like building a new society itself okay cool good but uh I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Are there any, let's see, you've already gone over sort of a little bit about desire. We've talked about jouissance. We've talked about objet a. Um, actually, let me ask you, you've mentioned on the podcast Das Ding. Yeah. This is something that I'm a little bit less familiar with. Yeah. So I'll, I'll finish up on this question for you, and then I'll let you get on with the rest of your Sunday. Okay, so Das Ding is so dusting is just the german word for the thing and lacan doesn't translate it 
because I think, I, I mean, so Freud uses the term in the Project for Scientific Psychology in 1895, and then Heidegger writes an essay called Dusting. So I think those are the two antecedents that Lacan has in his head that he's thinking about. So he develops this idea in his Seminar 7, The Ethics of Psychoanalysis, and then it kind of disappears. So it's an interesting concept. It's like that... So that's the seminar where that phrase we talked about before, don't give ground relative to your desire. That phrase also only in seminar seven, nowhere else. So a couple interesting things come just out of that seminar. And the Das Ding is the, so it, a lot of people think that Das Ding eventually became objet a. So Das Ding is the overpresence, unbearable excess of the other that is opaque to the other itself and opaque to you as a subject. So uh, oftentimes this will manifest itself in the first caregiver, like this dosiding of the parent that is constantly, Lacan has this thing where the, he says the, the parent is always on the child's back. And that would be like, that would you be experiencing the dingness of the parent, like this overwhelming. And, and so Part of what he so then he he his idea there is that we have to gain some distance from this dusting of the other, and that's what the symbolic order does for us. Like it gives us this proper distance from dusting, and yet we still have to relate to this dusting because that's what makes the other desirable. And so you can see how that kind of eventually becomes objet a. And it's interesting because for a lot of people that are in this Lacanian line of thought uh, objet basically is important and dusting isn't but for certain people uh, namely my friend Richard Boothby Rick Boothby his he's writing a book on religion and it's all about dusting and his idea is that really the foundational struggle is with dusting and all religion is born out of this confrontation with the other's opacity that is oppressive to us and we try to get some purchase on it through religion. So I think that's pretty interesting. I asked, I was talking to Slavoj recently, and I asked him about this, this very question, and he's just like, I, I, I don't think dusting is really worth talking about at all. So he's, <laughs> he's, he doesn't find that interesting. But I, I do. I think that this notion that there's something in the other that is opaque to the other and to me, and, and and that that's where the object lines up. I think it's important to distinguish that and to think about that in terms of dusting. So I do think that there's something to that idea. And I think it's a it can be important for theorizing like how things are like how we relate just to other people. And I think uh, Rick's idea, Rick Boothby's idea is that one of the things, one of the reasons why the phone is so popular is it allows us to relate to the other person without their das ding, right? Like you, you just text them, you like, even if you're right next to them, you look through the mediation of the phone and that puts their das ding at a distance from you. Whereas if you're, if you're confronted just with their body, you're confronted also with this, opacity within them that you don't understand and don't like, what do they want from me? What is like, what, what do they even, what, is, what do they want to do? Like, it's interesting. Cause my, my son just had an experience last night where they had, we had some friends over and they didn't know the two girls who were there roughly their age. And they, they took them down to the basement and they asked the girls if they wanted to play ping pong. And the girls were like, uh, no, we'll watch you play. And then they just went off into their separate corners. They didn't talk the rest of the night. <laughs> and, 
my son said they're just they were so just they were just had they 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 just didn't want anything to do with us. They were just boring. And then I heard from the girl's mother that she was the girl herself was like, I don't know why I said that. I really wanted to play ping pong. I just so so rather so you see how it's great this way in which this utter miscommunication about which is precisely centered on this Das Ding in the other person. And I, she, in a way, she didn't even know what she was feeling because there's something opaque to herself in herself. Right. So I think, yeah, I think, so I think it's a very powerful concept, but one that's very divisive among, because so Lacan develops it in seminar seven and then almost doesn't mention it subsequently. He mentions a few times only. So it's a really interesting kind of, uh, it, it's a sort of divi- uh, uh, a dividing line between Lacanian people. Interesting. That kind of brings to mind something that I've been thinking about. So I'm I'm a pretty avid social media user, primarily Twitter, and I've I kind of you know this is kind of like tongue in cheek. I've described po- I call it, you know posting like in general, right? Yeah. Which is um, so kind of my style of posting is I'll take maybe something like object ah and i'll smash it together with something very like crude or vile and kind of like you know like a for, like a bathroom joke right yeah, yeah i'll do stuff like that and i've described it posting as uh as desire like posts are desire yeah themselves yeah, the yeah, desire, yeah like there's a desire for recognition from the other but i i i derive like an enjoyment i don't know in the sort of the community and I wonder if there's something to that and kind of what you articulated in this idea of the, the dusting, like there's that sort of opaqueness being removed. I don't know. I'm, I really enjoy the online community. You know, a lot of people like complain about it, but I, I'm thriving within it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it, I think part of what makes it, you know, it's a kind of enjoyment that you can have without this you know, without confronting the other and the, with the, the Das Ding and the other. So I think there is something to that in the online community. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I notice it in my, my boys all the time. Like they really, they find it so much easier to have, like they even, they even have these friends that they talk to all the time via their video games, but they, they never see them in real, in real life. And yet they feel really bonded to them. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I mean, I, Rick's wager is that, something is really lost without the dusting experience. But you can see why people are kind of gravitating against it because it's, there's something horrific about it too, right? Like it's horrifying. And so I, I think that you're, you're sort of put your finger on it, that there's, there's, there's something that makes that community more pleasurable when it's without the dusting attached to it. Yeah. Well, Todd, I, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I think this was one of the, more fascinating podcast that I've had. And, uh, I just want to thank you again for taking the time out. It's <laughs> kind of like randomly emailed you and you were like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally in for this. So not even knowing what to expect. No, it was great. No, I had a great time talking to you. It was really, it was, it was very pleasurable. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, so what, uh, do you guys have kind of a, a stable of episodes that you release one by one or do you kind of have a backlog or you just do them as kind of an ad hoc? We just do them ad hoc. So we, I mean, we have a, a, a backlog of things that we're planning on doing, but we, but we don't, we, we both are, kind of, in fact, Ryan just got a job. So we, we're, we're very much like trying to 
squeeze in the time to, and then when we oftentimes we'll say, okay, we're going to record now. And then we'll just talk for two hours just about, (laughs) about sports or something. And then we never, we have to schedule another time to do it. So do you have maybe something that you're going to be, do you have one on the horizon that you maybe we do? Our next one's going to be on Mad Men. So the, the television series. And then I think we're going to talk about, um, at some point we want to do this Lacanian uh, aphor. We've been doing these different aphorisms. And so one of the ones we're going to do is the unconscious is structured like a language. So that's, that's on the horizon too. And then we also want to do one on psychoanalysis and feminism and psychoanalysis as a feminism. And we're probably going to have a guest on to do, to talk about that too. So nice. Well, I, I definitely look forward to that. I'll definitely be posting uh, in the show notes, a link to the pod and uh i for sure i've definitely like i said i've drawn on them heavily to kind of fill in some of the oh that's cool uh, like i said i touch on a lot of kind of post-structuralism and so forth but lacan has been i mean i've done so many episodes where he's at least referenced <laughs> once here or there so very good let's spread the word <laughs> great once again dr todd mcgowan thanks again this is podcast care of cooper cherry signing off